0: John chapter 16, starting in verse 16 in just a moment. If you are a guest, um, we're glad that you're here. We've prayed for you. We'd love to know about your visit. If you have a prayer request, or if you just want to let us know that you're here, you can fill out a card in the seat back in front of you, drop it in the gift boxes to the right and to the left of these doors, and we'll contact you in a respectful way. So let's go ahead and get to work in John 16. Uh, this is week number eight. Uh, so far in this sermon series we 're covering from John thirteen through seventeen this is the last uh, discourse that Jesus has with the disciples right before he 's arrested okay so that 's the context, and we 'll come back to that in a moment, starting in verse sixteen, it says this: "A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again in a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, "What is this that he says to us a little while, and you will not see me and again in a little while." And you will see me, because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does this mean by a little while? We did not know what he's talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, this, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being was born, has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and that your joy may be full. Verse 25, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name... And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered to them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in, my, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Say it with me. Thanks be to God. Amen. Father, I pray right now that you would, in this place, that we would um, be built up, encouraged. For those that are on the brink of despair or worry or anxiety, wondering about times and periods and how they could possibly be hopeful, I pray that, that we would take heart. For those that are in bitterness right now, that have endured things that leave them wondering where you're at, I pray that we would leave here as children of joy and of peace because of our hope in you. That our future hope would affect our present joy and peace. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So in high school, there was a, a little book that came out, okay? Now, I didn't notice because in high school, I didn't read books very often unless they were assigned to me. But this book came into the world and it became very popular, it's called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Now, when I was in college, the book had eventually become a movie. Like in about four or five short years, it had been made into a film. And by the time I was having kids, so several years later, the book and the movies became a franchise that led into a park and resorts and dozens of people dressing up as wizards every single Halloween Um, Five years difference. Now, five years before this first book was published, it goes on to be like a huge bestseller. J.K. Rowling, the author, was living on welfare, struggling as a single mother. She described her apartment or her flat as being the poorest housing you can possibly imagine without being homeless. It's infested with mice. And Rowling wrote this entire first book, uh, on trains, and while she's working as a teacher, she finally gets somebody to represent the manuscript. She presents it, 12 different publishers, all of them rejecting it, and finally when they accept this book of Harry Potter, they print 500 copies, she made $4,000 in royalties, and they said, don't quit your day job. Of course, now, with 450 million copies sold, worldwide, movies, theme parks, fans everywhere, Um, it's amazing what this small span of time makes, right, in this one person's life. Now, I'm not sure exactly what it was like for her five years before, uh, living on government support, a single mom, but I can imagine that it was extremely difficult, and I also just imagined this week that if there was some way to show her, like, a picture of what was going to come as the mice are running across her feet, right? As she's in this moment, if there was some way to say, hey, there's something else coming, I, I just suspect that maybe a smile <clears throat> would have broken across her face. Maybe she would have begun to grin. I don't know. Maybe she would have begun to cry. I'm not sure. Now, for us believers, I'm not suggesting with bringing up this story that all of you are going to sell some kind of uh, novel Or that your best life is just around the corner because I don't know time and seasons. But for all of us that are in Christ Jesus, there is an eternal future that we have. That I'm sure if we could get a small vision of it, it would transform the way that we suffer today. It would transform the way that we endure in the midst of things being taken away from us. In the midst of us wondering how long, oh Lord, it would absolutely transform. And then similarly, Jesus, in his last conversation with the disciples before he's arrested, he's preparing them. He's giving them words of courage and strength, of peace and joy. He's promising them things. And he's also promising that their life is about to get very, very hard. He's saying, you're going to weep. You're going to lament. There's going to be suffering right around the corner for you. In a little while, you're not even going to see me anymore. But then in a little while, you're going to see me again. He begins to describe that they're going to be hated, that their hardest days are just in front of them. And as he described this, he also described the spirit being a helper, which we've visited several times throughout this sermon series In this moment, this last bit of time, right before he begins to pray, which is the last part of this sermon series, he's telling them, there's something that you should anticipate. Both hard things that you should anticipate, but absolutely supernatural joy and peace that you cannot possibly imagine that he begins to describe to his disciples in this moment. There's something more. And in this conversation, as he begins to speak into that specific time period, now he's talking about, like, in a few days, I'm going to be arrested, then I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to be visible to you again when I resurrect. So this momentary uh, absent and then presence would have filled their imagination as he ascended into heaven. So throughout their ministry, from this point forward, they probably would have remembered these words and thought, hey, he told us before, that we would endure these things, these things, a little while he would come back. This passage is important for us because many of you right now are enduring things and wondering, how long, O Lord? How many times have we asked that question? Maybe some of us, even in the last week, we've wondered how long till these things come to fruition summary of this passage on the screen. Jesus promises supernatural joy and peace to everyone who loves and believes in him. That's the summary. Now, I'm going to divide the text into three categories. First, a confusing timetable. They're all looking at each other, scratching their heads. Second thing, a joy that transcends sorrow and a peace that transcends trouble. So let's get to work and look at this passage. First of all, when he tells them, I'm gonna be here, I'm gonna be gone, I'm gonna come back, it's a little while, they begin wondering how long is a little while. So immediately, their response to this promise of suffering and joy was, wait, 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 how long are we talking, okay? They turn to one another. Rather than just asking Jesus, now Jesus knows, he can read all of their minds in this moment, but they're looking at each other wondering, what does he mean? What's he talking about? Sometimes, uh, Sometimes this is true of all of us. In the midst of our confusion, Jesus and his word can be sitting right in front of us, and we're looking at each other going, wait, what? What are you talking about? What could God possibly be meaning? The other thing that I want you to see is that everything, even their thoughts, everything is open and laid bare with whom we have to do. That's Hebrews chapter 4. Everything. He knows all of it. Jesus looks at these disciples, and he can tell that they're discussing among themselves now, maybe they were trying to hide it, maybe not, but either way, he knows what's going on, okay? And rather than just giving them a timetable, hey, in a few hours, this is going to happen, and then in another few hours, this is going to happen, he continues to describe what's going to happen. Verse 16, he, again, in a little while, I'm going to come back, this led to confusion, specifically wondering about God's timetable. Now, before I go into what this means for them, the promise of sorrow being transformed into joy, I want to just uh, pause for a moment and, and acknowledge that most of us are concerned with the timetables of God as well. We're asking the same kinds of questions especially when something feels confusing or hard or that the promise of something good feels far away to us, we're wondering this same question. We get caught up in times and periods and we can be asking ourselves these questions so long. Listen, there are whole denominations dedicated to figuring out when the timetables of God is gonna play out. And Jesus looks at them in the midst of their wondering the timetables and he says, okay, I'm gonna explain even further. And it doesn't quite make sense at first. He says, I came from the Father, having come into the world, I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Eventually, it becomes clear to them. They're like, ah, now we understand. But before he makes sense to them, he says, truly, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So this First, promise. Now, he's been promising these things, but he promises a joy to them that will transcend their sorrow. First, I want to start out with their sorrow. What does it mean that they're going to weep and lament? Now, we can see in hindsight that they all scatter, okay? Even though they said, okay, now we believe. He's like, you really believe? You're about to run for your lives, okay? Weeping and lamenting. Now, the other thing I want you to know is that Jesus sees that the normal Christian life Like his disciples from the very beginning have had a a, uh, experience of weeping and lamenting, okay? It's not foreign to us. I know that it doesn't sell cars or sell products. When you show that, that part of the experience of following Christ is that there's going to be weeping and lamenting. That there's permission for us as Christians to have an emotional response to what's going on around us. There's not only permission, but acknowledgement of loss. Now, there's very little space for this in most churches. Like, we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about lament, that we would acknowledge that there's loss, experienced loss in this world. But for anyone who's actually walking with Jesus, we have permission to see that, hey, the world is not as it should be with infertility, miscarriage, maybe that diagnosis that you weren't expecting. All of those things, Jesus would not deny that those things are happening in the world around us. He wouldn't even deny that we should have an emotional response to that. He says, you're going to weep and lament. And then he puts what they're weeping and lamenting about, the suffering of Christ, in isolation to the world. He says, look, the world is going to see the same things and they're going to rejoice about it. Part of the experience of following Jesus is isolation from the world. People look at us and they laugh at different things that we laugh at. They, don't, they rejoice when we weep. We're different from the world around us. This is part of uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world. That there's not a shared grief other than other believers, okay? Other people will look at what we're grieving about and say, what's the big deal? Other people will laugh about things happening in the world and say, what's the big deal? And those that are connected to God's heart will look at it and say, this is not as it should be. There's things that delight us that are different than the world. There's things that grieve us that are different from the world around us. One of our distinctions is that we would celebrate when things that in the world, they would say, that's not okay. And there's this confusing moment with Jesus and his disciples where he's painting a picture of the world rejoicing over them, thinking that they're victorious in his death and them scattering and weeping and lamenting. Other people are gonna rejoice over you. Now, every believer in this room needs to know what to expect. That they're not, that part of being a follower of Jesus is that there's going to be a complete difference than you in the world. Because being a believer is not some escape from suffering. It doesn't uh, doesn't mean that you're somehow going to be delivered immediately from the hard things in the world. That's the prosperity gospel. That's what. False teachers would claim that you can somehow be delivered in a way where you don't have any more sorrow, you don't have any weeping, that God somehow delivers you from the experience of living in this world. He does not deliver you, but he gives you a supernatural helping of his peace and joy. Different from the world around you. Verse 32 says, you guys are going to be scattered, each one to your own home. You're going to be weeping and lamenting. And even when you're alone, waiting in all those separate spaces, you're not going to be alone. And even when you abandon Jesus, Jesus isn't going to be abandoned by the Father. Jesus here describes their future with a promise of sorrow that's different from the world, a promise of sorrow that will be transformed. And then he gives them this illustration. Jesus gave a perfect illustration because he's the perfect teacher. Let's look at it. Verse 21. When a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow because her hour has come. When she delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being was born into the world. He's describing the way that we experience joy and sorrow and how it's different from the world. How does this joy transcend sorrow? Well, it's very similar to childbirth. How would Jesus know? How would Jesus know about childbirth? Well, listen, culture's different there, okay? Uh, he at least had a few siblings, right? We know of James and Jude that wrote books in the Bible. We know that he's been around to see his mother give birth to siblings, okay? He would have seen the anticipation till their birth. He would have, and and, and being in a Gregorian culture, uh, he would have seen that this is like a normal pattern of how things work. Anticipation, 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 some anxiety and fear. And then when the moment comes for nine months, 40 weeks, there's anticipation. And then this moment of anxiety and fear of how difficult it's going to be. Typically a lot more so with your first child than the second, third. And during the process of labor and childbirth, there's great sorrow. When the baby comes, there's great relief. Relief. The experience that you've been delivered and so has a baby. The baby comes, the pain eventually subsides. And Jesus is saying there's this distinction in your sorrow. The way that Christians are going to endure sorrow is going to be full of anticipation. They're going to know that there's something on the other side of this. The same way that a woman walks into the delivery room knowing that there's something on the other side of this. Knowing that there's purpose in our suffering. That God's producing hope and character in us. Knowing that there's a time frame, okay? There is some time frame to our suffering. There's eventually going to be a period where it's all over. that might not happen in this lifetime. But there's a day coming when there will be every tear will be wiped away. We're going to be no more suffering and sorrow, completely delivered. And knowing that there's something much better on the other side of this, there's a joy that would be so immense that it would erase our memory of the pain. Listen, for my family, pregnancy was like really hard for my wife. But every time, eventually I would forget how hard it was on my wife. Now, I know that's, that's a secondhand experience, but in the same way, God is saying, hey, there's going to be a point when the memory of the anguish is going to pale in comparison to the joy ahead. Now, some of you have suffered great things, trauma in your life, and this is the hope that we cling on to, that there's going to be a joy that eclipses the sorrow that we endure. And our joy is going to be in the life of Christ. Now, he's describing a joy when they see him again. He's saying, you're going to see me and something is going to happen to your joy. And you may have some joy now, but it's going to be transformed into a, into a way that cannot be taken from you. Look at verse 22. Also, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. He's promising them that when they see Jesus, when Jesus sees them, they're going to have joy in their hearts and it's going to result in rejoicing. In other words, there's going to be an expression, not just an experience. It's not going to be like a quiet joy that you sit in the corner with. It's going to find its way out of your mouth. It's going to find its way into rejoicing, a response to what God has given to them. Your hearts are going to rejoice. And look at look at how it's transformed. Nobody ever can take it from you. When you stand in this reality of knowing and experiencing the son, Jesus Christ, there's going to be a way in which your joy is, it results in rejoicing and it cannot be robbed from you any day in the future. And then he describes what it's going to look like. It's going to result in prayer. Verse 26, in that day you're going to ask in my name and I do not say that you will ask the Father on your behalf. In other words, the way in which I've been here present with you and you just ask me what all your needs, I'm standing right here with you. In the future, you're going to ask the Father and I'm not going to have to ask him for you. Jesus has mediated for us and continues to mediate for us, but he gives us access to the Father. The way that we've been mediated for by Jesus, means that we can pray to God the Father. In fact, he instructs us to pray to God the Father. That's the right way to pray. Father, who's in heaven. He taught his disciples to pray to the Father. And now, from this point forward, your relationship with the Father is different. It's not only mediated, but it's been reconciled in my name. And he says, look, your relationship with the Father is going to be different. You can go straight to him, you're gonna know who he is. You can pray to him, and he's gonna answer prayers. How? In my name. Now, this isn't like a ticket to name it and claim it or blab it and grab it, okay? It means that. It means that whatever we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, when it's in alignment with his character and his glory, he's going to grant things that confirm that he's working in our world. Okay? When we cry out, hopefully, the banner of our prayers is that it's in the name of Jesus. That it's in alignment with his character. So what's in a name? It means that Jesus' character and glory is being revealed in the world and to us. And when we pray to God, we pray in alignment with him. Sometimes it's off, sometimes it's on. When it's in alignment with his name and character, God reveals things in his provision to us. That's one of the ways that our sorrow is being transformed into joy. Look, he always is asking us to pray in alignment with his name. You ever read Psalm 23? Never noticed this till much later in my life that he leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. He's doing things in our life and through us for the sake of his glory and not for the sake of our own comfort or our glory. He invites us to be part of that. He's saying, you can pray to me in my name and for my name, and I'm going to do things that you could not possibly do for yourself. So your relationship with God, the Father's being transformed. It's being transformed by the work that Jesus came to do. You're going to have joy because Jesus is not only mediator, but he's reconciled us to God, and he's working this act of reconciliation through us. And now the joy of reconciliation is verse 27. Look what he says. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. God himself loves everyone who's being reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. So what Jesus does on the cross is gives us access to be reconciled to God, to experience his commendation and affirmation on us, not because of what we could do, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And that reconciliation should transfuse our hearts with joy. Just infuse us with peace that transcends circumstance. This reminder that the Father loves them, the way that we know that he loves us is that we love him. Okay? We love because he first loved us. But you listen, there is no reality of the Christian life outside of our affection for God. Okay? There's not some other way to follow Jesus. He transforms us and He gives us a love for Him. To those who received Him, to those who believed on His name, He gives us the right to be children of God. That's what John chapter 1 says. So for those who are believing and receiving, He transforms our affections for Him and there's this natural response that everyone who's loving Jesus Christ, the Son, the Father is just pouring out His love on those because He has reconciled us to God. So, look, if you reject the Son, if you do not love the Son, that is a sign that you do not belong to God. If you love the Son, if you love Jesus, this is an indication of the Father's love on you. There are no believers that do not love Jesus Christ, okay? There's no one saved that does not love God. And for all of us, love and affection for God is the result of our belief in him. When We begin to believe he is who he says he is, that he's done what he's done. When we begin to believe those things, it transforms our hearts towards affection towards him. He explains they're going to be not seeing him for a while. They're going to see him again. He tells them their sorrow is going to be turned to joy. And then he gives them an ex- explanation of the joy. I came from the Father. I've come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world. They finally get it. And he begins to explain why he's saying these things to him. Now, there's several places throughout this whole text where he says, this is why I've said these words. I've said these words to you. I've given you these commands in order that fill in the blank." And there's basically three things that he wants for his disciples, that they'd love one another, that they'd have joy, that they'd have peace. Now, I'm going to just go recap real quick before we get into the peace that transcends our tribulation and troubles. Chapter 15, he says, I've said these things, this is verse 11, I've said these things, I've spoken them to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 15, 17, these things I command you. Why? So that you will love one another. I'm telling you, so that you'll have joy. I'm telling you, so that you'll love each other. Chapter 16, verse 4, but I've said these things to you. Why? So when the hour comes, you're going to remember what I told you and that you'll be joyful and you'll have peace. Look, I want you to remember this so that you'll have joy and you'll have peace. I want you to love each other. Verse uh, 16, I mean 17. 13, he goes on to pray and he says, I'm coming to you and these things I've spoken in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And then finally, we am going to end here and then move into the next sec- section. Chapter 16, verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I'm saying all of this to you so that you will have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Final explanation. This is like the final words of the final words of the final words. He's saying, Look, I'm saying all this to you so that you're going to have peace. I want to just take it one part at a time. In me. It's in Christ Jesus that he offers us peace. There's nowhere outside of Christ that we can get the peace that he offers only through himself. And there's lots of places you can look for it. Pills. Alcohol, things that would numb you to the anxiousness of the world, to the suffering. Things that would make you feel like you've been delivered from the suffering. And Jesus is saying, there's a specific kind of peace that only comes in me. So that in me, you may have peace. Peace in the midst of sorrow. Peace in the midst of pain, of fear, of isolation. When you're scattered, you're going to have peace. Running. For your life. And you're going to have peace. How is this? It's through knowing and experiencing Jesus. To walk in this world hidden in him. As Colossians says. We're going to sing a song in a moment. The rains came. The winds blew. My house was built on you. And this made the church credible. There's a book called The Rise of or The Triumph of Christianity by Rodney Stark, and he describes how the church grew. Now, I quoted a few weeks ago about people taking care of the sick. There's a whole chapter dedicated to persecution, and what these guys are about to endure, it's going to be absolutely stunning how they respond to it. Lots of people have suffered in the world. Part of the credibility of the church is how people suffered the way that they suffered. Every time people saw them suffering, they said, there's got to be something to this. He says this describing martyrdom. It's going to be on the screen. Of all the proofs, all the testimonials, nothing approaches the credibility inherent in martyrdom. How could mere mortals remain defiant after being skinned and covered with salt? How could anyone keep this faith while being slowly roasted? on a spit. Such performances seemed virtually supernatural in and of themselves, and that was the effect they often had on observers. Christian viewers would see that the hand of God was on the martyrs. Many pagans were also amazed. The distinguished physician Galen wrote of Christians that their contempt of death is so patent to us every day. In other words, we can see it Fifty-four accounts of martyrdom make frequent mention of pagans having gained respect for the faith from having observed or even having taken part in the torture of martyrs. The pagan onlookers knew full well that they would not endure such tribulations for their religion. In other words, every time a Christian suffered and it was observed, there was something supernatural about it, specifically in martyrdom. But it's not just in martyrdom. There's a way that Christians endure trouble that looks distinct to the world. Onlookers look at it and say, that at least gains my respect. The pagans standing there in amazement because they never would have suffered for their religion in the way that Christians did. And Jesus promised to them that in this world they will have trouble. Part of the troubles that he's assuring them of is their martyrdom. People are going to hate you. They're going to think they're doing God a favor when they kill you. That's your future. And in the midst of that, you're going to have an incredible peace. Why would they do that? He says, look, I want you to take heart because I've overcome the world. Two pieces. Take heart. Now, we're going to get there in just a moment. When things are hard, how are we supposed to be encouraged? The reason why is this. Because Jesus has overcome the world. He's navigated the world without a flaw. Perfection. He's he's perfectly navigated the world that's troubled and he did it without sin. He's the only one among us who has done that. Jesus has overcome not only in his life, but in his death. He's about to accomplish what we could not accomplish for ourselves. And that offers us a kind of peace that transcends troubles. And so I want to end with this. What's the conclusion today? It's this, that we would take heart. (laughs) That we would just take heart. You guys have seen it before, like when a player knows that they're defeated, whatever sport it is. Lots of time left on the clock, but they they begin playing as if they're defeated. You know what I'm talking about? There's a lot of us that, Perhaps in this room, that's how we're doing life waiting for the clock to run out. Just waiting, because we think it's already over. Jesus, in this moment, is infusing his disciples with encouragement and hope, saying, Hey, you're going to endure really difficult things. And no matter how long the clock ticks, take heart, because I've already overcome the world. In other words, we've already won the game. It's over. Take heart. Be encouraged. If you can see the victory, if we could paint a picture five years before Harry Potter, sold. If we could paint a picture for J.K. Rowling, wouldn't a smile break across her face as the mouse ran across her foot? If she could imagine what her future held, and for us, I'm not not saying in this life, because you may have more troubles in the future, in this living, in the land of the living, than you do in, the, in that's behind you. But the encouragement that we take with us is that God has promised us in the future. And we're not alone. There's no hardship we're going to endure. No, that gives us the kind of understanding that we can go through this life, no matter how hard it is, as a woman walks into the labor room saying, hey, there's joy on the other side of this. I'm going to be delivered. He's already overcome the world. There's a song that I've been listening to this week. I just wanted to put the lyrics up here and pray them over us in closing. Hear all you, is this is called Take Heart by Mission uh, Mission House. It says this: Hear all you children of heaven's promise, shivering under clouds of gloom. Hear all you wondering where your God is. Jesus weeps tonight with you. Take heart, take heart. He has overcome the world. Here, all you weary, trouble's companion. Praying to find a peace unknown where sorrow's river hallowed a canyon. The wounded healer's water flows. Take heart. Take heart. He's overcome the world. Our joy is born in labor labor pains. Love suffers long, but not in vain. Take heart. Take heart. He's overcome the world. We wait differently than the people around us we grieve differently than those around us. Paul describes a similar kind of waiting in Romans 8. He says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It doesn't even compare. Whatever our how long, O Lord, is, it does not compare to the future that's been promised to us. And he goes on to say in verse 22, for we know... That the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It means when Jesus has arrived. And now not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. We groan, yes, it's, it is a hard song and an offering of praise that we sing. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then he goes on to say in verse 28, this is the coffee mug verse, okay? But it is our hope that we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's our hope. So take heart. He's overcome the world. Let's pray together to that end. Father, thank you for this, your word. I pray that you would seal it in our hearts till the day of redemption when we see you face to face. And between this day and that, I pray that you'd give us a joy that stirs up rejoicing that the world cannot possibly wrestle from our hands. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.